Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, we are joined by a very special guest, uh, a fellow member of the Podcast Town community, Roger Walkoff. How are we doing tonight? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Absolutely. So we're bringing you number 35, or episode number 35, Bull Durham. And uh, just as a quick sense, as we do with all of our guests, uh, tell us a little about yourself and why you love movies. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, I'm a professional speaker, and I'm a professional uh, speaker trainer, and uh, I'm a huge movie fan. Uh, I originally hail from uh, New York, uh, been, spent some time in the South, and then I ended up in the Midwest here for the past 28 years. I got lost, as somebody said. <laughs> so uh, I've enjoyed it here. <laughs> Loved it, raised my family here. Uh, movies, honestly, they've always played a, a big part in my life. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, my mom bringing us down to the uh, local theater where they had the, the the Disney series one a week, you know, uh, and we just lived for that. And then as time went on, I just loved, loved movies. So I love movies because I can get lost in them, right? That's one of the main reasons I go. They're an escape for me. And I love one that has a great story. And uh, what that means to me is that either I can get lost in it or I identify with a character in it, right? I get emotionally drawn into it. Um, my greatest uh, movies that I like, the, my favorite types, my favorite genres, I love sci-fi, time travel type movies, big into those, all the space movies. I love alternate history, universe movies, that kind of stuff. Big into the superhero stuff. I love comedies. And uh, as you can tell, baseball movies. So you've already hit quite a few of these points. And most of our guests that we bring on, I usually want to introduce them to the show through their favorite movie, especially if they're going to be a recurring guest, just so they're a little bit familiar with the show. You selected this movie out of basically everything. So what makes this one of your favorite or your favorite all-time movie? Yeah, it's, it's got baseball the way that I think baseball needs to be portrayed. Uh, I've never seen, uh, I've, I've seen other baseball movies, you know, like Field of Dreams or uh, Major League, you know, some of those come to mind. You know, they're great movies. They're entertaining movies. This one got to me, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, because to me, it's, it's, it's a combination of a baseball story, a relationship story, and honestly, life and life teaching moment stories. Um, it was one of those movies that kind of got behind the scenes to see what the characters really looked like in a raw way, um, especially the baseball players. Uh, you know, you got a romantic comedic theme going on through here <laughs> as well, which, which doesn't hurt for movie making. Uh, but the reason, that, that's, one, that's why I really liked it. It just resonates with me every time. There's something about baseball stadiums, going to the ballpark, that just every time I go uh, just – gets me right here. And that's me pointing to my heart with my fist. And you've already discussed quite a bit about this, but what exactly makes a good movie for you? What are the parts that uh, combined make it to be a favorite of yours? Yeah. And it, not so much maybe uh, Bull Durham, but um, uh, you know, I like a surprise. I like a twist, you know, at the end, something I haven't seen, something that I can't predict, something that is unpredictable. Uh, it, the reason I like this one is you could kind of see, see it coming at the end. You know, good guy gets the girl at the end. Good girl gets the guy at the end, however you want to look at it. Um, the character goes through, you know, some struggles. We see the, the, the character struggling a little bit emotionally. We get to, to understand the character. We can see themselves. We can see ourselves in the character. You know, I could see myself in uh, some of the characters in this, like the Kevin Costner character, or, you know, uh, to some extent, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the other players. 
Well, uh, since you love a twist, I will say that novelty is a big part of our scoring system uh, when we get to that part of the section of the show. Sure. Uh, all right. So for you at home, uh, let's just give you a quick rundown and background on Bull Durham. Plot summary. In Durham, North Carolina, the Bulls minor league baseball team has one asset no other can claim, a poetry-loving groupie named Annie Savoy, played by Susan Sarandon. As the team's season begins, Annie selects brash new recruit, Abby Kelvin Lelouch, also known as Nuke, uh, played by Tim Robbins, to inspire with the religion of baseball. Nuke also receives guidance from veteran player Crash Davis, played by Kevin Costner, who settles Nuke's errant pitching and te- teaches him to follow the catcher's lead. This movie was uh, nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Ron Shelton at the 1988 Oscars. In 2000, the American Film Institute placed the film on its 100 Years, 100 Laughs list, where it was ranked number 97. And in 2008, AFI included Bull Durham in its top 10 sports films list as the number five sports film of all time. So... Do you, I don't have have... Any, do you even have any idea who Ron Sheldon is? I didn't realize he wrote the screenplay. Yeah, he wrote the screenplay. He was a minor league ball player himself. Okay. Yeah, yeah. this is. I think this was his springboard. Yeah. To be quite honest, so yeah. um, I don't. I don't have a lot of familiarity with him, but um, I, I've heard of him generally when certain people talk about. Uh, movies and stories of the game. So it's not like it's an unfamiliar name, but it's not somebody like, oh yeah, Ron Shelton, I know him. Now, uh, I already know, Dana, you've never watched this film before last night. And so you don't have much of a relationship with this movie. This is only the second time I've watched it, and I got through maybe 10 minutes before I was texting you that, gosh, I don't even remember half of what was in this movie other than the basic uh, parts of it. I'd only seen it once, and I can't even remember when that was. So, this is the rare movie where it's going to be pretty one-sided. I'm going to ask you, Roger, what is your relationship <laughs> to this movie? Oh, and right there I'm saying, guys, you got to rewatch this. There's so many great things in it. Well, we're talk, we'll talk about it. So, my relationship to it is this, honestly. So, it's no surprise. Like, as a, as a kid, I wanted to be a baseball player. I just did. I loved the pageantry of the game. I loved all the uniforms. Um, you know, when I was playing minor league ball, uh, you know, that was – Little League ball, excuse me, not minor league ball. I don't want to leave anybody with the impression I had a minor league ball career. Little League was fun. You know, I just loved getting out there. I loved the smell of the leather. I loved hitting the ball. I loved the snap of the sound of the ball in the glove, right? To me, it was just such a, a, a visceral feeling every time I played the game. Um, and, and when I was a kid, we used to save up to go. Well, I lived in New York and uh, about 100 miles outside of New York City. And I am probably one of a handful of Mets fans, right? Everybody in New York is like Yankee, Yankee, Yankee. I was not. I was a national leaguer all the way. And what we used to do is we'd save up. There were these coupons on milk cartons we would get, and we could trade them in to go to the ballpark. And that was like the pilgrimage for me, right? We would, we would all hop in the back of the station wagon. Uh, we'd drive down to the big city, uh, and, you know, we'd go to the ball game. Um, and so – I, the, the other relationship to me is that, like, I always wanted to be a catcher. They stuck me at second base. Why, I have no idea. But, you know, okay, I, I'll be second base. But I loved, you know, the equipment. I loved the, the big glove. I loved all of it about, you know, baseball. And there's a scene in, in, in Bull Durham 
as you follow Annie Savoy into the ballpark. And, you know, the, the camera, it, it was a great take, I think, on the camera where she just walks into the minor league ballpark. She walks up into the, the park. And then all of a sudden you see the lights and the green of the field and, 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 and the players practicing. I mean, that to me, that is a moment that everyone who loves baseball remembers. Every time you walk into a stadium and the first time you walk out and see the field, it's just this uh, beautiful feeling I get about the game. So the relationship for me to the movie is I always wanted to be a ball player, wanted to be a catcher, and I just love the raw emotion that Crash Davis plays. That particular shot that you're describing has been the exact shot that they do to sell every opening day game for every single year that I can remember. ESPN must have that on like um, backload or in a a vault somewhere where they do that with every single stadium in order to do that. And I think it's because it gets to every baseball fan's heart. I know that when I go to Miller Park, right? I've always been a homer. Wherever I go, you know, I'm a, home, I'm a, home, uh, a hometown fan. I go to Miller Park, and yeah, every time that I go and I see the field for that first time, for that first visit, I, I guess it feels to me like the first time. Like, and and it just, it, it's one of those things that just kind of takes my breath away. I mean, I look at every detail. I look at everything, you know, what, what the players are doing, who's practicing, who's hitting. How are they touching up the field? It's just, uh, it's, it, 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 you know, Annie Savoy in the movie describes it as the church of baseball, a cathedral. You know, it, it's kind of got that religious, re- religious, religious feel to me. So I know that you hadn't watched this before, so you don't have a relationship with the movie. But, Dad, I don't know if there's too many other people in my life that have a closer relationship to baseball than you. Well, <clears throat> see, I studied well, I became a baseball fan when I was a kid. My first game was the first season the Brewers were in Milwaukee, 1970. I sat on my dad's lap because he was too cheap to pay for an extra ticket. Um, so, uh, and they allowed you to do that at that time. You know, um, it was uh, guys like, um, I'm trying to remember who was on that team, other than Tommy Harper and uh, Ken well, Sanders and stuff like that. Anyway, let's not have um, our city slickers moment here. Just anyway, it was the it was the Oakland A's. Um, so that was the team with Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, Joe Rudy, um, all of these guys that went on and won multiple World Series. Gene Tennis, <clears throat> Gene Tennis, yep. Ray Fossey, uh, Catfish Hunter, okay. uh, Blue Moon Odom. Ken Holtzman. Yeah. So a lot so, of nicknames, which Dan, uh, Dan, I will mention, do come back on this particular episode. Dana, you, you're reminding me of all the baseball cards I collected, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I know. And, in fact, uh, Tom has his eyes on uh, a couple that I have, which includes a uh, uh, 1952 rookie card of Willie Mays. Mm-hmm who I would argue is the greatest baseball player of all time. I'm just putting that one out there. Yes, who was originally signed to join the Braves and the uh, commissioner at the time, who I think was Ford Frick, said, nope, we're sorry, we're not allowing multiple black athletes with one team. That's something. So so otherwise we would have the Braves would have had Mays in center and Aaron in right. Yeah, that would have been a, a deadly combination. If you ask so, me. But anyway, and, and what I'm going to tell you is, is, and again, this is, I'm going to be the old duffer here. When I was a kid, I found this strange book 
and it was had a name on it that I thought like, well, this must be something that would be interesting for somebody who's a big sports fan. So I had no idea what it was, but I grabbed it off the shelf at the library and it was by this guy who had pitched for the Seattle uh, Pilots in 1969 and had been a Yankee. His name was Jim Boughton, and it was called Ball Four. And it was an inside account of baseball. And I'm sitting here going, you know, they're talking about uh, Mickey Mantle being so drunk, he's driving up on people's porches, <laughs> and, you know, the Yankees would quick run somebody out to, to take care of everything and pay people off then so that it all go away. And um, then talking about drilling holes in the uh, adjoining doors in the hotels to see if you could get a stewardess next door. I, oh I mean, goodness. yeah, this is all this, these antics. And so when I'm watching this movie, it's bringing back the, some of the stories I remembered from ball four. Um, because it's a lot of the same situation, a lot of superstition, a lot of weird yeah. things that they did because you, you're on the road, you have so much downtime. Right. So you find ways to fill it. And so that's the feel I got out of this movie. I'm with you on the feel. I hear you. You know, what's interesting to me. I mean, it's like, I, here, I'll, I'll just put this out there. I mean, Kevin Costner is like this man child, right? Just hasn't grown up yet. And doesn't want to. He wants to play the game as long as he can. You know that. Everybody, I think everybody would want to play the game as long as they could. And I love, you know, talking about the antics, right? There's the scene where they, uh, you know, they're like, oh, guys, we need to catch a break. We just need to catch a break. We're, we're losing, my, you know, how about it? You know, we could use a rain out. And, you know, one of the guys, guys, it hasn't rained in weeks or days. You know, how are we going to get a rain out? And then you see Crash Davis coming up, smirking all just cocky and says, I can get us a rain out. <laughs> hundred bucks says I get us a rain out. And they're like, how the heck are you going to do that? Next thing we see, fast forward, right? They're at the ballpark and <laughs> they turn on the sprinklers and just flood the place. Uh, you know, it's hilarious. And then, you know, man child, because, you know, what does he do as soon as he turns them on? Right? He starts running around the field, sliding around, sloshing around. And the guys are all on top of each other, right? They just want to play the game. They want to have some fun for as long as they can. Funny, funny stuff. So my particular relationship to baseball is, like many things, much in the same way that my movie history is from my dad and my grandfather and all of that, It's so is my relationship to baseball. Um, I grew up with, rooting for some truly terrible Brewers teams. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, celebrating guys like, uh, Jeff D'Amico and Jeremy Burnett's and Jeff Jenkins and Richie Sexton, Lyle Overbay, Jose Hernandez. I mean, guys that are just like way out in the uh, periphery of baseball names. But uh, I will say, if there are three things to illustrate uh, my enjoyment or where I connect to this, and I will say that football is my favorite sport. Basketball is probably number two. So, so baseball is kind of trailing a bit behind. But uh, I used to play home run derby in my backyard with a tennis ball almost every day when it was not snowing and sometimes even when it snowed. And it was just what we did. I was on the baseball team. I won't say that I played. I was on the baseball team all four years, but my dad taught me how to score a game 
when I was probably in seventh grade and I got the golden pencil award all four years because that's what I did. I sat on the bench and we used to come up with just tons of weird jokes. Um, one of it was, is somebody kept uh, uh, telling me that I needed to open a crumpet shot with my dad, call it Tom and Dana's crumpet shop. And then started doing this weird woman's accent from England. Oh, man. And th- this whole other thing where the amount of uh, seeds that we were chewing or just uh, this guy's going to probably hit it here and we'd take bets on whether where the ball was going to end up getting hit to or any of those things. But the most telling thing about my personality in connection with uh, baseball is I played t-ball two years when I was very small. And in t-ball, apparently you can't ever get anybody out. Everybody gets to hit. There, you can throw it to first base, but it's really more of an effort thing, which never sat well with a fairly competitive child like myself. So one of the days, I took the ball and did the hidden ball trick at first base, and I said that the guy could not be safe. They threw the ball, the, some guy hit, or I guess they didn't throw it in T-ball, but some guy hit the ball into the outfield, and I had a ball in my pocket, and I pulled out and tagged him. Because it was just not acceptable that we couldn't compete and that we weren't keeping score. So no, no participation trophies. You got to. Oh God, no! Uh, I hear you, man. But but Tom, you did have a position. It was called left out. Oh, oh that's terrible. That's awful. <laughs> oh man. Well, Dana, good for you for teaching him how to score. I mean, that's it. That's awesome. I, and my story about that is, is I had to be about uh, somewhere about ten or eleven. And we went to a brewer game, and I'm sitting next to uh, an older gentleman, and he leans over, and my dad had bought me the program, and he says, do you know how to score? And I said, what's that? So he explained it, and then he showed me how. And my dad thanked him, and he said, it's no problem. I really miss it. He said, I used to be one of the official scorers for the Braves. Nice. So... So both of you, before we went into full recording mode, kind of uh, were questioning my ability to figure out what this movie is about. I said, and I I maintain, there are certain movies that you should have uh, don't watch before, um, like, stickered on them somewhere. Right. Now, I'm 30, and there's a little bit in there where I probably didn't understand this movie the first time I watched it, whenever that was. So I think I have a different appreciation for it now. And particularly, I've said it many times doing this show, that I have a different appreciation for most of the movies that we watch now that I'm looking through it or at them through this lens. But here is my best attempt at trying to figure out what this movie is about, and then I'll let you guys kind of free reign from there. It's the intersection of a dream versus talent and loving something your whole life that seemingly doesn't love you back. I, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think it. I, I, yes, you know, if I were, if if you were to, if you were to put it in a, in as few words like that, uh, I'm going to go with that, uh, Tom. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I, I agree with you, and I'm going to build onto it. I think it's about three things. As I said before, I think it's about. Uh, it is about relationships. It's about, it, it's certainly about, you know, it, it, there, there is a bit of uh, gamesmanship and baseball in there. Um, but the biggest thing that, I, that I've gotten out of it over the years is that to me, it's, a, it's about a teaching, it's a teaching movie. It's about two people trying to teach this young kid uh, 
life, baseball, and all of that. And the you know throughout the whole thing, they're just too stubborn enough to see that they like each other and that they're both going at it. They're both going after the same thing, but in different ways. So another movie that we're eventually going to talk about that's a favorite of mine, but represents a lot of this same dynamic, even though it's not completely the same, but Goodwill Hunting is very much like this movie. It's somebody with an immense amount of talent that right. you're teaching not to throw their life away by relying on dumb antics or whatever else. Now it does it a lot more comedically. That movie is a lot heavier um, right. and a lot more emotional, but this in the same way, I mean, I think this is a better first half movie than a, than a full movie. I think this is a first hour movie. If you ask me, uh, I could give or take certain portions of the, the second hour of the movie, but I will say the most uh, important scene and maybe I'm tipping my hand a little bit is that drunken scene at the end where crash basically confronts nuke when nukes trying to be grateful and thankful and actually, you know, being a decent guy for once, which is out of character for what he's been up to that point and crash throws it back in his face because Nuke represents all the things that Costner wish he had. Yes. And that's the, con- that's the struggle that they go through the whole movie. Uh, Costner is instantly, he instantly takes a, or Crash Davis takes an instant dislike uh, to Nuke Lelouch, right? He just does. He's like, seriously, you brought me up here to, to counsel and, and, and bring this kid up. Uh, and uh, as he goes through it, he gives him all these lessons. And at the end, uh, he crash becomes more compassionate. He, he shows him more of himself, right? He, he becomes more vulnerable as it goes on. I think the, the biggest thing for me is the, the final teaching moment that we see when the two of them are in the locker room. Um, and crash says to him, this is after that fight that, that <laughs> the last fight they have, but they're pretty vulnerable. And crash says, right, these big league hitters are going to light you up. You got to be cocky and arrogant, even when you're getting beat. That's the secret, right? And we see a bit of remorse there. You know, I, it, that, that's what it's, it, it's saying to me. Like when, he, when, when Crash was in the big leagues, he wasn't cocky or arrogant enough. He didn't get the secret. You got to play this game with fear and arrogance. That's his last, you know, big lesson uh, to nuke. Um, and maybe, maybe he was cocky and arrogant, but he didn't have the talent like, like nuke. Maybe that was it. So, Dad, you were doubting me a little bit. How did I do? Not too bad. I'd add one more, which is it's really, in part, a story of faded dreams. You know, mm-hmm. you get to a point in your life where it suddenly dawns on you that what I had hoped for or what I thought I was going to be or achieve is just not going to happen. And, I, you know, I think to some extent, because it's a baseball player's life and the the monologue he has towards or Costner has towards the beginning of the field of what he believes in or the movie um, kind of summarizes it. And I, I think to some extent Costner, because he's a, and he makes comments about women distracting you and such. I think to some extent Costner has sworn off of relationships because he thinks that somehow this is going to prevent him from hitting the majors. And then when he finally realizes that, it's just not going to happen and his dream is over and he's watching this other kid uh, fulfill a dream and he's envious, which is why he's so bitter and why he's such a, a jerk at the end of the film. <laughs> you know, um, he finally opens up and says, you know what, maybe it's time that I actually 
start a relationship. So he does. And then as he does that, the the telltale sign is where he starts talking about, yeah, maybe I can hit the majors as a manager. Yep. I love what you said there, Dana. And and it's, you're so right. uh, Crash Davis Costner is so focused on baseball, right? Baseball is everything to him his whole life. You know, he can quote stats like nobody's business. You know, he remembers, uh, he remembers the assistant manager that he hit the home run off of. You know, he quotes uh, Sandy Grimes' stats. He, you know, so baseball is his life. There's one scene, right, where he's walking the town, and it's early on, and he picks up that cardboard tube, and he starts swinging it, and he starts swinging it back and forth, and, you know, he looks himself in the in the glass. You know, he's doing everything he can. What's that one extra thing, the one extra edge that he can get to make it back to the majors, like you said, to to to, to fulfill that dream? And distractions be damned, right? He, I'm with you on that. That's, a, that's quite a revelation that, yeah, he's, he's forsaken everything. He's forsaken everything. He's forsaken relationships, right? Because it's going to distract him, right? You know, when he's up at bat, when he first gets there, you know, and he's like, all right, who is this guy, right? All right, I've seen everything you've had. Who's this Annie? Annie, 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 get out of the batter's box. Get out of the batter's box now. Get her out of your head. You know, it's like, no, that's a great, that, that's a great, uh, observation that you made there that I'm tying back to those those different points that really hits home for me. Thank you. So I do want to highlight the second portion of the the what or my what is this about loving something your whole life that seemingly doesn't love you back because I think you've kind of both brushed on it but I, I think that was the biggest portion of why I highlighted that that particular saying. I can't tell you the amount of times we had a hoop in the driveway when I was younger kid up until about the time I was 13. And the amount of times that I turned around and hit a shot and, you know, it's five, four, three, two, one. And I'll, I'll release this as the audience. I'm a very short man. I'm about five, four, five, five. I'm heavy set. I was never fast. And I'm very, very white. If you couldn't have figured that out by now, I'm just giving it to you. But the sense being, I was never going to be a great athlete. It, it just was not going to be the case, but you still dream of that. And the thing is about sports, even when you have a dream, you love the sport more than the sport is ever going to love you. It's just a matter of uh, everything else. It's never going to love you back in the same ways. And for Crash, this is his, his entire life. His entire life has been built into his uh, early to mid-30s, being a baseball player, it's how he identified himself, it's how he carried himself, it's how everything he remembered, every piece of his intelligence has gone into doing this. And ultimately, it's going to be for naught, because he never truly made it to the place that he thought he would be happy at. You know, I, the, the thing that's getting me here is it seemingly doesn't love him back. I, I'll give you your point. I'm with you, Tom. But I think, I think it has its moments where it does love him. You know, he, he knows it's a game. He, he enjoys the, he enjoys the, the mind game that goes on. He loves predicting what the pitcher's going to throw to him. Uh, he, uh, one of my favorite, you know, little scenes is uh, when he gets up and he says uh, uh, to the guys on the bench, this guy starts me off with a curveball. I'm taking him downtown. And it's like, he, he studies the game so much that he gets what he wants out of it. Right. The guy, throws him the curveball and he hits it out of the park, you know, and, and there's several points out there where, you know, he's, he talks about the game in a, as if it is his, 
uh, significant other, right? This is a fun game. Come on, let's have fun here, guys. Uh, you know, uh, we're having fun, damn it. <laughs> laugh. Right. Um, uh, you know, and his laugh just cracks me up. So I'm with you. You know, it seemingly doesn't love him back. It has its moments. But and I'm, what I'm going to say is that it doesn't give him the ultimate moment like he wanted. He only got 21 days, you know, in the big leagues. And that was it. He was always trying to capture that that moment back. I, I just wanted to share tied to this is my own story. Um, we've hosted um, players from the um, Northwoods League, which is college kids who are uh, potential pro prospects who play. It's a summer. collegiate summer league. Yeah. Well, one of the kids we had was a, a tall, skinny, whip-like kid who threw a submarine ball um, fastball about 95 miles an hour Mm. and he had uh, a a slider and a curve that um, buckled everybody's knees and when he left I said you know you eat like crap you're eating ding-dongs and um, Gatorade I said you need to take care of yourself because I've watched you I've watched baseball since I was five years old you're special you're gonna make it but you're gonna you. But you're gonna screw it. You have you have the talent to make it. Just don't screw it up. Well, he ended up getting drafted by the Oakland Athletics and was a key part of the Mike Fires trade from the from the Tigers. And so he's in the he's at Triple A right now with the uh, or would have been this year at Triple A. I think he's on their sixty man roster for the summer. Um. And uh, I happened while he was uh, in the minors, uh, the A's minor league ball club is in Beloit, um, which is my hometown. We went down and watched him, Mm. took him out for dinner. And as I was driving him back to his car, I turned to him and I said, Nolan, you don't understand this, but you're living a life, a situation right now that I would kill for and that I only dreamed of. And I said, you're going to do yourself and you're going to do your family a favor. Start a journal. Write everything down. Every experience, every road trip, every game, write it all down. It may not make any sense to you now, but someday you'll look back and you'll have this all recorded. It's all your memories and you will appreciate it. And I know your children will appreciate it. Dana, that is some of the best advice you could have given him. Wow. That is that is beautiful what you did for him. I will say as a millennial, we record everything on social media anyway. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah we, we, we'll, we'll go with the pencil and paper. But I, lo- I love what you're telling him to record his own story because it's going to be – he's going to look at it differently down the road. All right, let's move over to best performance. Um this is going to be a fairly simple one as far as I'm concerned. I really don't see too many others having a better performance than Costner in this. Does anyone disagree? I gave it a tie. Um, I just, uh, to me, it was a straight up tie between him and Sarandon. Yeah. Costner, because uh, funny, raw, passionate man, child, I said, uh, Sarandon, because she, I believe she's equally raw and passionate and she's also cunning alluring and smart 
there, there's a certain element to her and her performance. I, I keep thinking this, especially because she ended up playing um, in a biographical sense, this woman later on. And I love uh, Betty Davis's earlier work, but she is a modern Betty Davis, probably not as talented or in as many movies because Betty Davis was second to none in her era, but she reminds me so much of her and is able to play almost a similar personality type that she's so flexible in her demeanor that she can go back and forth while being extremely serious in one sense, but not off-putting and yet silly, but not over the top. And it, it, she straddles this weird line in that. And I don't think of too many other women that I would have ever been able to recast this role and get the same level of performance out of. Right. Dan, who did you have as your best performer? Uh, Costner. All right. Uh, I, as far as Costner for me is the nominee, this is that period where um, we have about a three or four year stretch. He does this, he does Field of Dreams, uh, he wins the Oscar uh, for, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves. Um, and like this is key era Costner, and these are the movies that you particularly think of. He's got this um, keep calm, but be, I don't know, above it all type of attitude of everything that is going on. He's projecting a certain coolness, uh, but you can see his vulnerability underneath in a lot of these movies. And uh, for everything he exudes, I, again, this is one where you so closely tie the movie and the role to the actor that I really couldn't see anybody else doing it. I'm with you. So best secondary performance. Uh, I already mentioned her, but Susan Sarandon was that for me. Uh, again, I, 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 it's difficult to imagine. I could have recast, even as much as I like Tim Robbins and I enjoyed his performance in this, I ultimately think there are a lot of people that you could have gotten a different performance that wouldn't have detracted from the movie as much because I think the character is such an archetype that you could have done a whole lot of different people, but there aren't anybody different in my book than Sarandon and Costner that could have made this movie as good as it is. I agree. Uh, because I gave him a tie, <laughs> I went for number three with Tim Robbins. Uh yeah, I mean, he, he pulled off young, clueless, and shallow like nobody else. Um, I thought he was really good in that. Um, I'm going to give a... redundant? <laughs> probably, right? I'm going to give, a, I'm gonna give a, 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 a tip of the hat to Robert Wool as Larry, the oddball assistant manager, uh, just, mm. be, just because of the comic uh, relief that he has, right? All the weirdness whenever the... Whenever uh, the skipper asks him, well, what's going on with Luke? Well, he's seen out of the wrong eyelid and his chakras are all messed up. Like, duh, isn't it obvious to you? But he has tabs on everybody and everything that's going on in the organization that every time he, 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 he's like the, uh, he's like the whack-a-mole. He comes up every now and then or a ground squirrel, you know, you see him every now and then and just ducks down. So I just, I liked him for that. So I didn't know his name officially, and I didn't even bother to look it up because every time he came on screen, all I thought was, oh, that's the guy that plays Arliss. Yeah. And I've never even seen the show. I just equate the two so closely. 
But I will tell you, the number one thing I hated about being on a baseball team, because it seemed like it was a requirement, and I never really played Little League, uh, so this was never something that I, I thought was important, and I always thought it was annoying. Baseball chatter. That guy has the worst baseball chatter in my lifetime, and it's so over the top, it reminds me of every time we had to do it, because it's so ridiculous and nonsensical. Who the hell cares what I'm saying on the bench while guys are trying to actually play the game? Yeah. You hit it on the head. (laughs) So, Dad, who did you have as your best secondary performer? Well, he took mine because I was going to say Robert Wall because he he was the, uh, to me, he is the bench coach on every team. You know, uh, I just got done reading a story about uh, the the Brewers. Uh, their bench coach, Pat Murphy, had had a heart attack in August and was out for a month recuperating. And how they missed him because he had this certain way of, of you know, when times were tense to just crack a joke or do something silly and bust everybody up. And it's that type of character that every team that – has any level of success, any modicum of success has on their bench. He just, and I have always enjoyed Robert Wall. Um, I think the first movie he was in was a movie that I saw with my dad that uh, he hyperventilated through most of it uh, called Hollywood Nights. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I remember the one scene where he's supposed to have, uh, sex with Fran Drescher. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen her with her. Nasally voice. <laughs> and uh, that's one oh. where you need a ball gag. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, I do want to give an honorable shout out to Ron Shelton. I, I don't know if this yep. is the best uh, plot uh, of a script. Uh, I love his premise and all of the setup that he gives it. And the dialogue is almost second to none um, in the amount of things. When going through quotes, we're going to have like a ton of them here uh, to read off at some point. And we've all been in a certain sense, quoting the movie repeatedly through this, but I just, since none of us mentioned him, I do want to make sure that he's at least recognized for that. The other thing I'll say is the guy who plays the manager in just some of my um, cursory research uh, I did see about seven months after this movie came out, had a stroke and passed away. Yeah. So he did not make it very far past this movie, but uh, he's another guy that um, just, since this is such a big movie, if that's got to be your end note, it's not a bad end note to go out on. Yeah. I'm with you. So most charismatic award. I gave it to Tim Robbins. I don't think there is a scene in this movie where nuke doesn't show up and basically steals the show or at least is the front man, if you will, to every piece that he's in. His goofiness, his over-the-topness, his um, boyishness, all of these pieces kind of work for him and just pop off the screen to me. Uh, Roger, who did you have down? Um, My most charismatic was uh, the – it was was Crash. and I go back to the scene where he, where he and uh, Annie were on the bench uh, at the end of the movie. 
uh, there was just that chemistry there. You know, the, the criteria were like, what, what immediately drew you to it every time I saw or heard it? And uh, that's one I just keep going back to. That's one I could just keep replaying. There's such a, a neat intensity about the moment between those two that, uh, that he pulls off and, and she pulls off with him. Uh, so I'm going to go with Kevin Costner. Dad? Costner. There's a reason that he became a movie star. I, I remember the first film I'd ever seen him in, and I think it may have been his first big or first film that he was actually more than a corpse in. And for those of you who don't know, his scenes from The Big Chill were cut. So the yeah. corpse in the beginning of it is Costner. That's all they left it of, the, of his scenes. Um, but the film I saw was Silverado. Right. And he just had a knack for always just being bigger than life in the film. And, I mean, you got uh, Scott uh, Glenn and Danny Glover, and, you know, they're not like they're overly charismatic, but he really popped off the screen in that. And so you can see that in his performances. He just has a knack for being, you know, filling the screen. That's so a great comparison, uh, yeah. I forgot about Silverado. That was a good one. Good reference. It's one I've never seen, but I guess we'll add it to that giant list of uh, projects we eventually are going to have to undertake. Yeah, I got to actually stand in New York City outside of a theater with Brian Dennehy and talk about filming Silverado. Really? All right, now I, now I'm envious. I used to watch when that came on cable all the time. We watch. I watched that so many times. It wasn't even funny. Uh, didn't Brian Dennehy just recently pass away? Yes, he did. Okay. I, I couldn't remember for sure, but I thought that might have been the case, which is unfortunate because um, you and I saw him in um, uh, reproduction along with Christopher Plummer of Inherit the Wind on Broadway, which was phenomenal. Yes. Okay, so uh, let's move on to best scene. Uh, we're going to change up things a little bit and uh, see how it plays for the course of the show. But um, I'm just going to throw out my first nominee and we'll go until we run out and we'll just keep circling. So um, throw up your nominees if it hasn't been on the list before and then we'll pick one at the end. My first nominee, The Batting Cage. The interplay between the two. I, I think this is probably the best scene between Susan Sarandon and Kevin Costner's characters um, and the, the kind of interplay. Costner's basically just turned her down as being her selection for the year uh, because he doesn't like her potentially having control of the situation. Uh, I think his exact quote was, "Is why do you get to choose? And they have this, I don't know if it's iconic, but this just kind of back and forth repartee that um, is infectious and the pitches in the batting cage um, basically whizzing by in between them as they talk. I just thought it was such a great sequencing and all of the framing of the shot was ju just wonderful. I thought it just worked. Okay. Um, one of my... Uh... The one, uh, one of the best scenes for me, um, I'm going to have to go for it. It's, it's the one where, uh, where, uh, the skipper, uh, throws the bats on the, uh, on the ground, uh, in the shower. 
uh, the China, lollygagger scene. The lollygagger scene, which is quintessential. You go to any site that reviews Bull Durham, and they just go to that one. It is one of the best scenes. You know, you got to scare these kids. And it's so funny because if it's the first time you're seeing the movie, it's like, well, how the heck is he going to scare them? Throwing the bats on there, everybody in the shower, and it, you know, just the quotes in there are just tremendous. Uh, he scares the heck out of the guys gives him his simple philosophy about baseball and says, guys, we're going on a road trip. Bus leaves at 6 a.m. and he goes out and he's just swearing all the way to his office. I've had a few, yeah, I've had a few coaches that have tried that. Uh, I think it's um, like, uh, to be honest, I've had much scarier coaches and this is somebody who isn't scary trying to put on a front. Uh, so I, I more or less laughed at that as opposed to uh, getting any of the true um, fear out of the situation. But, Dad, what do you have down? Um, I love the opening scene, um, and I'll tell you right now my best, or my favorite line or the best line I'm going to do is the monologue that Kevin Costner goes through of what he believes. Um, yep. It's just iconic. By the way, with regard to the scene in the shower, it foreshadows the fact that Crash is going to end up becoming a manager. The manager yes. comes to him and asks him what he needs to do. And right. Crash immediately knows what to do. Well, I'm not going to tip my hand too many more times during the course of this, but that is part of one of my remaining questions. So we'll revisit that as we go along. Yep. Uh, the other one that I thought was just, and these are almost back-to-back. So my first one was the batting cage. The second one I had... That first one, and you've already referenced it at least once, Roger, when he first steps in, that first at-bat he has during the movie where he's talking to himself, and it it kind of previews how many other at-bats are going on, and he's in his head, and you're thinking with the batter. I think it just works so well because it really is, to a certain extent, just you out there. Uh, I think this would work really well in a golf movie, too, if you had somebody that like is trying to think through each shot and is having this inner dialogue and everything else, especially for as much of the movie as don't think, just do. Uh, The fact that he's thinking so much in his head about everything that's going on and all of that um, is, I'm struggling to find the right word, but not indelible, not iconic, um, endearing to this movie. I think that's a good word. Yeah, because you get to look inside the head. The way I look at it, the way I think about it is I've always wanted to know. I always, I'm curious about what goes on in people's minds. And yeah. whenever I'm watching a game, like we don't get to hear the dialogue. We don't get to hear what's going on. We don't get to hear what's going on in the conference at the pitcher's mound. We don't get to hear the argument between the manager or the player and the umpire. And this one where you, you see the self-talk, classic. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's what it's, yeah, it's like, don't think, don't think, don't think. Just swing, you know. And you hear them tighten up, tighten up, tighten up. You know, that's what's going on. You know, there are a hundred different things you're thinking about while you're trying to track a ball that's coming at you 95 miles an hour and has all this kind of movement on it. Exactly. I love that you picked that scene. And it's it's one of these things where uh, right now we're recording during the middle of the pandemic. And we are not really having fans anywhere. There's a few in some football stadiums that are larger. And everybody said how this is such a problem that we have to pump in crowd noise and all that. I'm like, no, 
I, I don't care that there are no fans there. It doesn't take me out of the experience of the game. They could be playing in a gymnasium. Put the mics actually on the players and give me some non-produced sound. Every time they do the, we're recording the players, it's always some weird thing that they pull out, which has nothing to do with anything. It's from the pregame warm-up, or it's like after a big play and they're just screaming at something and like giving their emotional. No, give me the interplay in a basketball game where somebody is criticizing the other guy's sister. Or they're calling out a specific play from the bench or yeah. something else. Give me some actual audio of what's going on that's going to mean something. And this is one of those rare instances where we at least get some meaning behind all of the things we see in a game. Yep. The NFL for mature audiences only. Yeah, there you go. No <laughs> kidding. Anyway, that's you what could, it would be. You could say that about the PGA, too, because I've yeah. heard a number of announcers saying, please pardon the uh, <laughs> please pardon the language. Um, I love, uh, Dana, the scene you picked, that the quintessential scene uh, where, you know, they're going to choose, they're going to choose, and Annie asks Crash, well, what do you believe in then? And you get that, that, that just iconic monologue. I, I just, I just love it. I'm going to go with another scene. Uh, one of my favorites uh, is... During one of the ball games, uh, uh, Nuke is shaking off, uh, shaking off Crash's sign, and he says, "This SOB is throwing a two-hit shutout, and he's shaking me off." You believe that, Charlie? Here comes the deuce, and when you speak of me, speak of me well. The guy hits a home run, and the funny thing is, you know, he goes out. <laughs> then Nuke goes out to the <laughs> to the mound. You told him I was going to throw the the curveball, right? <laughs> Crash says, "Yep, man, that ball got out of here in a hurry." Anything that travels that far ought to have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? I just crack up every time I hear that. I just crack. It's one of the best things because it's another teaching moment. It's like, dude, you didn't get it the first time because, you know, before that he'd, he'd, he'd already had this lesson once. Uh, but this is another great teaching moment, and he teaches by experience. It's like, you're not going to listen to me? Fine, pay the consequences. Uh, and with a great funny line on it. So I love that scene. Dad, I think you're up. Or scene? I gave you my yep. scene. Oh, we're going to keep going until we you have don't have one? anymore. Oh, well, I, I do love the uh, uh, I'm going to make it rain scene. Yeah. Mm. So that is that is kind of the, the thing that um, baseball players are known for. So I'll, I'll nominate two other ones since Dana's kind of like running out of uh, certain pieces, but um, – so the one I'll save the one I think is probably the most meaningful to the end of the movie in which we've kind of talked about. But the the first one that the first time that Crash uh, and Nuke step outside, or at least that Nuke challenges him to step outside, and the whole interplay of uh, I don't or I've heard that you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a fucking boat. And the amount of times that's been repeated or um, paraphrased in the, the amount of times, and you have these in a lot of sports movies or um, a lot of con artist movies, this, this whole trope of I'm going to challenge you and go right at the brash young kid and prove to you that you're not any good and you're going to get some level of humility is it just works every single time. I don't know what it is. And I say this as the youngest of the three of us, it works every single time. Yeah. The other one I'll just mention uh, as far as this goes, and I think it is the most um, meaningful movie of, or excuse me, meaningful scene of the movie more or less, 
is that scene that I mentioned before. Uh, Newt comes to celebrate more or less, and Crash basically throws it back in his face. And it, it's the dichotomy that's gotten to the peak. Nuke has finally realized exactly what he was there to do. Whether he likes it or not, he's realizing the dream that he may or may not have had when he started off this thing, but he definitely had by that point. And Crash is bitter that his dream is basically dead. Uh, he gets cut in almost immediately after that situation. His utility is no longer there, and he's got to remake his life without his identity while the young brash kid that he has to teach all of his lessons or impart, his life is just beginning. Yeah, I'm with you. I like that scene. I'm, I'm going to go with the one I mentioned before. Last one for me is uh, it's the one where they're sitting on the bench after uh, Crash has uh, hung everything up, right? He said, you know, he's hung up his cleats. He hit his record-breaking home run. And he just kind of bears his soul to Annie. He's kind of figured it out that now he's got the time. I like where you went with this, Dana, that he's finally got the time for the relationship and wants to make it happen. And he's trying to figure out how to make baseball and the relationship happen. So, you know, he tells Annie, I got a, I got a lot of time to hear your theories and on and on. And then at the end of it, he just says, I just want to be, you know, and to me, that's the great, that's part of the great transformation of the of his character right there. Uh, I just want to be. And then we see the transformation of her character where she says, yeah, I can do that too. I'm ready to be too. I gave up boys. <laughs> you know, I quit, you know, with my whole pick one player of the season. I'm ready to commit too. So I, I love that scene a lot. How about a sequel where Costner is a major league manager? They were going to do that. They talked about it, but it never, it never came up. And I think we're, we may talk about that at the end of this because that was one no. of those – Hanging we can talk about it. Yeah, we can talk about it now. I, I don't have it in my remaining questions unless one of you does. I did. But, okay, I, so then I, I, I will leave it. Yeah. All right. Uh, so out of those that we've basically uh, stuck to um, or nominated, what do you think is the best scene from this movie? Dad? The, uh, the Costner monologue. That's the best scene, in my opinion, and the best... Um, line because it really describes Costner's character and sets the way the film is going to go. I'm going to agree with you. Uh, Dana, that's my favorite one too. Uh, that monologue is, has a lot going for it. Uh, it's raw. It's, it's, it's the character in a nutshell. It puts, it's, it, it throws Annie on her heels and, uh, you know, the, 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 the poor schmo, <laughs> uh, Nuke is just sitting there dumbfounded because he doesn't know what the heck to think. <laughs> but I love that. I love that line. I love that whole monologue. It's, if I, it, instead of quoting Shakespeare, I wish I could have quoted that in high school, but they wouldn't let me. And uh, I I'll, do disagree with the Lee Harvey Oswald act of the loan, but that's another <laughs> story. Okay. How about you, uh, I will go back to the um, crash steps in uh, his his first at bat. I, I just for so many reasons, and because I think the movie works best when it's a baseball movie. I could give or take most of the relationship parts of this, uh, but it, it, when this movie really works is when it's representing. It, it, I think it's the best part of this premise is it's not a major league baseball team. I mean, we have enough of the movies where it's a professional or they're in a key moment or something else, but there's almost no consequences to anything that goes on in the story. It's just a 
story about guys who are trying to live out a dream, which is what minor league baseball is. And so you have that intersection where it's it works most of the guys who are either going to realize or not going to realize and playing off of that intersection, much in the same way that I mentioned that was what this movie, at least to me, was about. Uh, as far as favorite scene, um, I'll go with the uh, batting cage, just personally. Um, I don't know if any of you have a different favorite scene from your best scene, though. I think my favorite scene, uh, that, that one was uh, number two to me. I really like that. that. Everything you described, you described it perfectly, Tom, uh, the interplay. I love how you described that. Uh, I'm going to go with the final teaching moment that Crash has uh, with uh, Nuke in the locker room uh, where they're going back and forth. He, uh, uh, Crash just lays it on the line for him. Uh, I was going to say I'd love it because it's kind of like that father-son, mentor, mentee, uh, inter- interchange and it it just strikes a chord with me as as just a very meaningful moment uh, that Crash is the ultimate student and teacher of the game. Dad, uh, I like the scene in the pool room where uh, he tries to come back and and thank him. It's a complete role reversal, including the fact that. Uh, when or uh, a glass pane is broken over his right, sh- or uh, I guess facing it would be the left shoulder. It's a complete 360. From where oh, I guess the I didn't think of, the of that. Yeah, yeah. From it, from the beginning with the bar fight. Yeah. Yes, because he threw over Costner's left shoulder, broke the window, yep. and then the other scene they they come back and it's now Costner throws over his left shoulder breaks the uh, mirror and then ends up with a punch. Yep. Boy, you know, for, for a guy who loves symbolism and and that kind of thing, I'm surprised I've missed that in all my watchings of the movie. Thank you for, for that experience, man. That that's awesome. I absolutely missed it too. And uh, good, good catch there. So most indelible moment. Um, The way I would describe this thing is, is if you were to talk to anybody about, um, you know, what is this thing remembered for or anything else? And I'm a little bit shaded by this because I mentioned in the office um, the other day that we were, or that I was going to watch this movie and prep for uh, this particular episode. And somebody who I didn't even know liked movies or had seen this movie says this one thing, don't think, just throw meat. And I'm like, oh, so I guess you know the movie. So for as many times as it's repeated, the nature at which this entire movie is tied to it, and that that's probably his most important lesson, I think it is the most indelible moment. Hmm. Yeah. What do you two have down? No, I like that. I like what you were saying, uh, because it's the ultimate teaching moment. That's all he wants him to do is listen. Just get out of your head and do that. I, I like that. Um. Mine, mine was uh, mine. Kind of comes out of uh, Annie's monologue. Um, a couple of things that she says. You know, I see great things in baseball. It's our game, the American game. It will pair our losses and be a blessing to us. She's quoting Whitman. Um, you know, that whole opening, that whole opening scene with the black and white photographs and the history and and all of that. Um, 
it's probably not, I, th there are more probably indelible moments in there, but for me, that's one of the ones that I go back to. And Dad, what is your most indelible moment? Costner indicating that, that uh, there might be a manager's job open in the spring. To me, that's, that's uh, reminding every middle-aged, every, uh, every middle-aged person, not just guy, that, you know, when one dream ends, that doesn't mean your life's over. You need to set your next dream. I like that one, too. Well, that's a good place to cut just briefly to one of our sponsors. We'll be right back. We'll just keep it recording. I just put that in there. Dan, I'm going to get a refill. Yeah, he uh, likes to refer to it as his dad juice. I hear you. How's this going? Are we going good, Toms? Yeah, we're fine. I love this. This is great. Thank you. I love the conversation, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done perfectly. I mean, this is more than we could have asked. So as long as uh, you're set to go. Um, I'm having you know, a lot of fun. Great. And that's always what we'd like to hear. So I don't think that we've had anybody on that has said they didn't enjoy discussing whatever we movie we were doing. So um, I always love hearing that. But uh, then we'll just do best lines, basically. And there are three different kind of categories to this. So I always put something in there and then... Honorable mention, funniest line is usually one. And this is a movie where we'll actually have one. Get to the grading and then remaining questions, and uh, we'll see where it kind of comes out on the movie. So you there bet. will be a little bit of math. We did have some comment by our guest on Sunday that said, this is the most math I've ever way, done on a podcast. we picked up is really good. Well, good, Dad. Yeah, they were down here uh, now that I moved down to Madison, Roger. Um, they uh, went with me to the Total Wine over in Westtown. Oh, nice. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you can get lost in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a dangerous place to go. <laughs> well, I looked for bourbon, and uh, this is called, like, Oregon Trail or something. Nice. It's made in or or, I mean, it's distilled in Oregon. And you'd think, Oregon doing bourbon. Okay, but it won some sort of uh, gold award at the – national bourbon tasting competition so i'm like all right but it's it's lighter than normal bourbon and it's got kind of a it's kind of like an undertone of cinnamon so it's just different. nice it's a cleaner taste good gives so, you more reasons to visit sure all right uh whenever you guys are ready we can kind of come back Oh, yeah, Mil or Frank Robinson from Milt Pappas. <laughs> there you go. All right. What is it? Didn't Pappas blow out his arm, like, right away? And only, like, know. had, like, two more wins? I don't know. I, I almost know nothing about that one. Uh, you know, that's much more of um in-the-weeds baseball person. That is, which and is, yeah. It's a good call by them not to go for the obvious Babe Ruth trade. It was because I, I yeah. love that they, right? Because that, that to me is like showing she knows stats, he knows stats, you know? Yeah, and yeah. All right. So I think Milt Pappas won 299 games. Okay. Dad, you ready? Yep. 
Welcome back, and uh, we're going to jump right into best lines. Uh, we're going to try and handle this the way that we did best scenes and see how it goes. So the first one that I had off, and the reason I mention it or bring it up, this movie opens with one of the best monologues that I can remember. When you're joining a book or something else and you really want something to suck you in, I think this is the type of thing you're looking for when you know you've hit a great writer, uh, particularly of dialogue. And I... As somebody who has done some amateur script writing and uh, has such an envy of those that are great at dialogue, uh, like most of the best writers of scripts and the, the things I'm envious of, like uh, we just discussed Aaron Sorkin last week, um, I'm always envy of, envious most of those who are great lyricists and dialogue artists because it's the thing that I find to be the most difficult. I love plot. I'm great at plot. I can set out a great story, but I cannot do dialogue to save my life. So the opening dialogue or monologue, and I don't think I have the whole thing down, but I believe in the church of baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones. I've worshipped Buddha, Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, trees, mushrooms, and Isadora Duncan. I know things. For instance, there are 108 beads in a Catholic rosary. And there are 108 stitches in a baseball. When I heard that, I gave Jesus a chance. But it just didn't work out between us. The Lord laid too much guilt on me. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball, and it's never boring. Which makes it like sex. There's never been a ball player slept with me who didn't have the best year of his career. Making love is like hitting a baseball. You just gotta relax and concentrate. Besides, I'd never sleep with a player hitting under 250. Not unless he had a lot of RBIs and was a great glove man up the middle. You see, there's a certain uh, amount of life wisdom I give these boys. I can expand their minds. Sometimes when I've got a ball player alone, I'll just read Emily Dickinson or Walt Whitman to him, and the guys are so sweet they always stay and listen. Of course, a guy will listen to anything if he thinks it's foreplay. I make them feel confident, and they make me feel safe and pretty. Of course, what I give them lasts a lifetime. What they give me lasts 142 games. Sometimes it seems like a bad trade, but bad trades are a part of baseball. Now, who can forget Frank Robinson for Milt Pappas, for God's sake? It's a long season, and you've got to trust. I've tried them all. I really have. And the only church that truly feeds the soul, day in, day out, is the church of baseball. Well, that's one line. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I, I've always stuck to good monologues and uh, and the rest of it. It is by far the longest line we have read on the podcast. But I love it. I'm glad you picked right. that one. Uh, my two favorite ones out of that are what you just read. So I had two there. Making love is like hitting a baseball. Yep. And the other one, a guy will listen to anything if he thinks it's foreplay. I just thought those were just <laughs> freaking amazing. Um, one of the uh, what one of the funniest ones to me. Uh, I already gave you one where uh, you know he talks about anything you know, getting out of here that fast ought to have a stewardess on it, don't you think? I mean, that just cracks me up every time. Uh, I'm going to go for one where it's kind of near the end of the end of the movie, and um, I already referenced a little bit here. You know, when, when they all get on the mound and they're talking about stuff, and uh, the guy, one guy comes up, my girlfriend hexed my glove. Hey, did you guys know that uh, Millie and <laughs> what's-his-name are getting married? You know, and then, uh, you know, then uh, Luke Nuke is talking about, you know, his dad's there. And then, you know, finally, you know, 
that Larry comes up, the assistant manager, you know, what's going on? <laughs> you know, and Kraft summarizes it and says, we've got a lot of shit going on out here. <laughs> you know? And that's, that to me was just so funny because I'm, I'm picturing myself in the stands thinking they're talking about something important like, how are we going to pitch this guy? We got two outs. What do you want to do? Do you want to walk him or whatever? No, they're talking about, you know, candlesticks make a nice gift. I thought that I was I have the cool. exact quote here. So excuse me, but what the hell's going on out here? Yep. Well, Nuke's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here. We need a live, is it a live rooster? We need a live rooster to take the curse off of Jose's glove and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. Is that about right? We're dealing with a lot of shit. Okay, well, uh, candlesticks always make a nice gift and uh, maybe you could find out where she's registered and maybe a place setting or maybe a silverware pattern. Okay, let's go get two. Go get them. Right, and then he just puts his hands in the jacket and just kind of trots off like you see those managers do, right? It just, reminds yeah. me so much of the story. Uh, who was it, Dad, that uh, goes out to argue with the umpire and is talking about the restaurants after the game? When I was a kid, I read uh, Earl Weaver's autobiography, and he mm. talked about how, you know, and Ron Lu- I also read Ron Luciano's, and they hated each other, but they would – they would uh, actually, both of them, I think, told the same story. Um, Weaver came out screaming, and Luciano looks at him and goes, Earl, that was a really shitty call. I mean, I blew it, but I can't change it. So where are you going for dinner after the game? And they stood there shouting at each other, like, I think I'm going to go to Gino's for Italian. He says, ah, and they go back and forth just shouting about the restaurants. (laughs) I've so got to read that. All right, Dad, what did you have down? Or what's your I, first nominee, at least? Yeah, I had I had the, the crash line, which is exactly where I said to begin with. Um, I, I just love that line because it really is just the epitome of the movie to me. The I Believe in the Soul yep. uh, monologue, yeah. Do yep. you want to read it off? <laughs> Um, I suppose I could. Well, otherwise I've got it. Wouldn't be the first time I've ever used those words in public. No, I'll just put the explicit rating on this episode again. So, well, I believe in the soul, the cock, the pussy, the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, and the novels of Susan Sontag, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, self-indulgent overrated crap. crap. Yep. I believe Har- Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlining, outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning than, rather than Christmas Eve. And I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Good night. Yep. So the only thing that I that stuck out to me when he's quoting that whole thing, and which is probably why it doesn't have as much resonance for me as it did with you, the both of you, is he gets to the Lee Harvey Oswald line, and I'm like, dude, in two years you're not going to be saying that. Uh, <laughs> for yeah. reference' sake, this is 1988, right. and he right. does JFK in 1990. Right. You know, it's so funny. Uh, what I love about that one, like I have this passion about the designated hitter. I just hate it. 
And to hear a character that I identified with just go out there and say it. Um, I say that in a lot of my speeches when I go out and talk. You know, I said, if you want to ask me about baseball, I think, uh, I think the designated hitter, hitter is an abomination. And I believe with my heart that the, the Brewers went to the National League because they knew I moved to Wisconsin right at that time. So that's my, that's my two cents on the designated hitter. You, 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 play, you, you play, you hit, you hit, you play. There is no bigger divide between young and old than the designated hitter. Yep. Oh, yeah, if, you remember, if you remember back in the uh, early 70s. Yes, because um, I was born then. I'm talking to Roger, I guess, more than you remember <laughs> that. That, um, yeah. that, that uh, 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 Charlie Finley yep. um, suggested having a circle next to the batter's box and having a designated runner yeah. as well. And he had yeah. signed Herb Washington the track star and had him on the team to be a pinch runner. Yeah. I, I remember reading about that. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime they make changes to the game, like they're doing now, it just, just really throws me. And you both are going to hate me for this, but I love the regular season overtime role with a guy starting on second base. And, and people like you would Tom, that's fine. That's okay. That's all right. All right. My <laughs> next nominee. Yeah. Uh, Skip and Millie. Don't take this the wrong way, Millie, but if I catch you in here again, I'll ban you from the ballpark. You can't ban me from the ballpark because my daddy donated the scoreboard. What do we need a scoreboard for? We haven't scored any runs all season. Yep, that's a good one. I like that. That's right after. It's such a great entrance point, and I I think it's some of the best writing. This is why I think most of – he kind of ran out of things about halfway through the movie, as far as I'm concerned, from some of the writing standpoint. Mm. But this is such a great setup piece because it's not like it's an exposition, but you get everything you need to know from that set of lines. One, the team is not concentrating on baseball. You've got your star pitcher who's about to make his debut screwing a girl that is basically a groupie and hanging around for no good reason. And the team isn't winning anything. They're not scoring. They're not winning. They don't care. And you're getting everything out of that line and with a laugh. It is such a great use of dialogue. I agree with you. Roger, I think you're up. My next one, uh, I'm going to go with the lollygagger one. I'm going to quote it here, right? Uh, when 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 he throws the bats in, right? Skipper says, you lollygag the ball around the infield. You lollygag your way down to first. You lollygag in and out of the dugout. You know what that makes you? Lollygaggers. Larry, lollygag, right? Lollygaggers. What's our record, Larry? Eight and and 16. 16. Eight and 16. How'd we ever win eight? It's a miracle. That's right. It's a miracle. This is a simple game. And here we go. I love this. You throw the ball. You hit the ball. You catch the ball. You got it? 12-day road trip, six, six tomorrow morning. Uh, just one of the best things, right? It, 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 it's a simple game, guys. Love that one. I, I really don't have anything to add. I mean, it, it speaks no. for itself. All right, Pop, who, what do you have next up? And I don't have the line written down. I wish I would have uh, done that. But the scene where uh, the – and I can't remember the player's name, the devout – Christian who comes off and he turns to Millie 
and says, uh, uh, do you want me to share salvation with you? Will you hear my testimony? Or yeah, hear my testimony. That's what it was. Yeah. And you're kind of like going, yeah, all right. That's the ultimate there is the, the, the road groupie gets the religious, uh, religious guy. So by the way, the actress who plays played Millie, you know who she's married to? Nope. Tom Leonard, the actor who was played Felix on the oh, new yeah, Odd Couple. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Been oh, married Tom for like, Lennon? Or Tom Lennon, excuse me. Yeah. They've been married for like 20 years. Huh. Interesting. I don't know that. Uh, I do want to mention, since you brought uh, that kind of up as a that guy type of thing, did anybody else notice the guy uh, the guy that gets first cut in the beginning of the movie? That's also the guy that's Dennis Hopper's son from Hoosiers. Oh no, no, I did not remember that. I did not I did not know that was the same guy. It's a much different thinning hairline because it's a, a few years later, but it's the same guy. And I'm like, man, you're in two of the best sports movies of all time. Really? That's like your only calling card? All right. Uh, so the next one that I had down, uh, crash and Ebby on the bus. Uh, it's time to work on your interviews, my interviews. What do I got to do? You're going to have to learn your cliches. You're going to have to study them. You're going to have to know them. They're your friends. Write this down. We got to play it one day at a time. Got to play. It's pretty boring. Of course it's boring. That's the point. Write it down. How many athlete interviews aren't like this? And the fact that they're citing it as intentional is just beyond me. Yeah. I love that it's a behind-the-scenes look. Like, how does, the, how, did, how does this stuff come out of their mouths? Oh, it's planned. And the fact that they wrap it around at the end, and that's exactly – and he throws out, like, three or four of them right in a row during that interview and then hits on the reporter. I mean, that's so in character. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I've thought for a long time, especially during this time of COVID, they, uh, the sideline reporters, instead of actually interviewing athletes or coaches, they just have a cardboard cutout of the coach or player <laughs> and they, with, a mic be, or with a speaker in it. And so you just stick the mic in because, well, he gave it 110%. <laughs> I, this, is a completely, this is a completely different movie, but you're saying that, and all I'm thinking of is – um, do either of you are, are familiar with uh, uh, Talladega Nights, the yeah. ballad of Ricky Bobby? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And the, the sideline reporter goes up into the crowd, and I'm here with Larry Bird, it's some black guy. And I'm here with Kenny Rogers, and it's this short, like, Asian man. And I, all I'm thinking of is, is you get these cardboard cutouts, and you have somebody like that go into the crowd, and, like, uh, I'm here with Caitlyn Jenner, and it's... That would be funny. <laughs> And it's like uh, um, Dwayne Johnson's cutout. Yes, that would be good. That that would be a great joke. Uh, Do either of you have any nominees left? My last one. Last one. Rose goes in the front, big guy. Yeah. Just one of the funnier ones. And I'd forgotten that (laughs) the way it leads up to it, you know, where Costner comes up on him and says, oh, no, that's hot. That's hot. You know, he slaps him on the butt (laughs) as they're done turns it around on him. Yeah, my brothers and I just uh, will just look at each other every now and then and uh, 
just say Rose goes in the front, big guy for no for no apparent reason, just out of the blue. We just quote this stuff at each other. Uh, Plenty Dad, of good ones in this movie. Dad, did you have any others? No. All right. So uh, since both of you are done, I have like four or five others. I I really oh, couldn't man. stop. I know. So um, Nuke and Annie. The other day, Crash called a woman's pu- pussy. Um, well. Uh, you know how the hair is kind of in a, a V-shape? Yes, I do. Well, he called it the Bermuda Triangle. He said that a man could get lost in there and never be heard from again. Yeah. I, I just one. love all those, like, innuendo yeah. lines. Yeah. Uh, we just had that on the Sleepless in Seattle episode not too far back. Uh, there was another one like that. But uh, Crash, man, that ball gotta get, oh, got out of here in a hurry. I mean, anything travels that far out of have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? You've already yep. mentioned that one, Roger. Yeah, I love yep. that one. Uh, and I've heard that so many times. I mean, there, there's know, so the many other... things. I don't know if it this started certain lines, but it's like, oh, okay, this might have come from that. That, that. And the other one that there's the other one where he tells the the kid, "Here comes the fastball," and uh, the guy hit it out of there. And you know, man, that that guy's getting a steak dinner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow, it's almost like he knew I was going to throw a fastball. He did. He did. <laughs> Hands him the ball. <laughs> I mean, there we go. We're, we're, we're fast uh, approaching the time where we're going to lose our uh, play-by-play guys in baseball with, who have some real character. And uh, But, I mean, if you were coming in, wouldn't that be almost a great home run call? That one needs a stewardess. Yeah, that would be a great that would be a great line for, for a call line for somebody. I like it. Uh, Annie and Ebby, listen, sweetheart, you shouldn't listen to what a woman says when she's in the throes of passion. They say the darndest things. You said, yeah, you said crash, honey. Would you rather I were making love to him using your name or making love to you using his name? <laughs> and I'm just like, hmm, okay. I, I'm putting myself in these shoes. And I really can't decide. You can call me anything you want. <laughs> anything you want. All right. And the last one yeah. I, I think is a, a perfect epit- or epitomization of classicness since this works really well in 2020. Annie and Millie. Millie, you've got to stay out of the clubhouse. It'll just get everybody in trouble. I got lured. You did not get lured. Women never get lured. They're too strong and powerful for that. Now say it. I didn't get lured, and I will take responsibility for my actions. I didn't get lured, and I will take responsibility for my actions. I like that you picked that one. I, I, you know, I'd forgotten about that, and I was when I was watching it, I wrote that one down. Uh, yeah. That's it just a great sticks one. out so much to me in a much more um, female empowerment-driven society than we yep. are now, that that, that was – front and center in an early portion of the movie where this is really defining itself, that you're going to get these strong personalities, particularly right. to push back as a woman that's yeah. going to get front and center. And it, it speaks to Annie's teaching moments, right? You know, we see her as a teacher. Uh, she's teaching Millie. She teaches the batters. She teaches the play. Yeah. I love it. I love that. It's an empowerment message. All right. So out of any of these, uh, what do you find to be your best line or what gets your vote? Roger, we'll start with you. Yeah, we went we went through uh, so many. Um, you know, the the best the best line. We keep coming back to it. It's uh, 
it's it's Kevin's monologue uh, as my as my top one. Uh, you know, there, there's just nothing like it. Um, and I, I really enjoy um, I really enjoy where you went with the beginning. I'm going to give my honorable mention to what you you said, uh, Tom, uh, about uh, Annie's opening monologue. I mean, there's so much that sets the scene there. There's so many good lines in there. Those are my two. Dad. I'll be redundant. I'll agree with Roger because that's what I had. I've been saying that since the beginning. This movie, I mean, you know, you you, uh, see those montages at the Academy Awards where they'll show films. Almost every time that monologue is, or at least a portion of it, is in a montage because it is so iconic. Oh, I have. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's one of the considered one of the classics well i can definitely see it i just don't remember it being in like one of those big montages in the same way that several other ones are just my memory serves but okay well that's all right uh, the, the gray the gray hairs are, are, are in agreement here <laughs> fair enough and honestly i'm not going to disagree with that either of those i think you could go with a lot of these and I, i've talked them up but uh for what it is um i i really can't disagree with either of the picks so, uh, any of these that gets your honorable mention? Boy, honorable mention. Uh, honorable mention for me is um, crashes at the end, uh, where he's talking about where they're sitting on the bench again, where he talks about uh, "I just want to be." Uh, that one. That one's the honorable mention for me. Yeah, I'll agree again. Boy, we've found like uh, two spirit animals or something here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with something a little bit different. I will go with the, um, now we're going to work on your interviews. Because I think uh, for, it is, and I think you could probably go with Costner's monologue while he's in the batter's box, but in, in con- without the context of the visual, it doesn't work as well. Um, so I, I'll leave that out, but... This is probably the most revealing of um, things as far as behind-the-scenes type of thing. I I, I enjoyed that comment from you, Roger, that uh, it kind of gives you the the intentions of the players in a certain way and um, takes back the curtain, if you will, uh, to allow you to see, oh, yeah, this is intentional and kind of gives you um, that inside look that you wouldn't otherwise have because the rest of this is maybe not – relatable for the fan experience, but that particular instance, the interview, because you've seen so many athlete interviews and they're all the same. And particularly if you have anybody that played in the SEC, but it's, it's exactly like this. And so I thought um, this is just something that always stuck out to me as far as that. Uh, Let's move to funniest line. What is the funniest line? Roger, can I guess yours? Yeah. What is it? The rose is on the front. (laughs) <laughs> you got it my second uh my my my, my honorable mention is uh, the stewardess uh that thing traveled so far but yeah rose on the front big guy dad bermuda triangle although the scene you know you can't really do one scene but the whole scene with him on the mound discussing everybody's woes yeah uh to me i mean because Really, when you look at that, it just brings it back. 
I take baseball and you know so seriously, and I'm so into the game, and I'm so wanting the Brewers to win. And you know, ultimately, I'm much more serious. I think about the game sometimes than the players are, because they understand it's a game. They're trying to have fun, and you know, they want to win because they're competitive. But that's the kind of stuff that. You know, you're taken aback as a serious athlete because you expect everybody to be like really intense, and it just doesn't happen, especially over 162 games. I think we forget often that when we say um, these guys are players, that we forget that particular part of the the word. They are playing. Uh, and ultimately there should be some level of enjoyment into this, and we forget so much of it because as fans we get wrapped up in the result as opposed to the enjoyment of watching it. Uh, I will say in in my own corner of things, being a Wisconsin sports fan, I know that maybe other than the Green Bay Packers, who are the all-time winningest team in football, yes, I pulled that out of there, there are not too many other teams in my sports history, either university or uh, professional, that I can count on to win a championship or even be competing for one. So the rare instance where I have a really good team, such as the Bucks basketball team having the best player in the league, I'm going to try and enjoy it as much as I can and keep that mindfulness together because it's not going to always be there. I like that, Tom. I mean, to me, it goes back to the relationship that I have with the game. I like to go to a game. I love to sit and watch a game. Not many people have the patience for it, right? I love to hang out until the end, uh, until the last pitch. I don't care if it's, a, if it's a blowout or not. I stay because I enjoy what's going on. I enjoy the atmosphere. I enjoy the, 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 the pageantry of the game. And I also know that you know, I want to stay because I might miss something unique to the game. You know, as rare as they are, I might miss a triple play or a, uh, I might miss a grand slam or uh, I might miss something that I've never seen in a game before. Uh, and that's why I love to go because it is such an enjoyable time for me. And I know it's not an enjoyable time for everybody. So, hey. Dad, what is the number one rule of sports in the Duncan household? Other never. than not rooting for the Vikings? Or the Yankees? Or the Cubs. Yes. Uh, never leave early. Yeah. Yeah. I paid uh, for this seat. I'm going to stay until the last moment is done. Can I, can I share a quick story with you guys? Absolutely. Go for it. I went to a Mallards game uh, back when TDS was giving away TDS player of the game, right? Or, or, or those kind mm-hmm. of tickets. So I, we were sitting there. My father-in-law's with me. My wife's with me. And if... Uh, if, uh, if, the, if the Mallards turned a triple play in the game, I would have won something like $5,000. And so that kept me interested in the game, right? Every time. So it was really odd, right? Because I was cheering for the other team to get men on base so that we could set up the triple play. I kid you not, guys. Zero outs, opposing team, men on first and second. Batters up at the plate. Ball gets hit down the third line, down the third baseline. Third baseman picks it up, taps on the bag, whips it over to second, second out. Second baseman freaking double clutches. (laughs) And for those of you who don't know, that means they went to throw it two times. 
if he hadn't a double clutched, he would have had the out at first. Um, not only had I never seen a triple play before, but I missed out on $5,000. And I had my father-in-law sitting next to me cheering for it. And I kept telling him, hey, Maury, look, it's going to happen. It's good. Look, I know it, buddy. I feel it, right? Men on first and second, no out. This is classic. We are set up for it, buddy. And, you know, I to this day, guys, I think that second baseman knew that he was not supposed to execute a triple play. Otherwise, they, they would have had to fork over $5,000. That's what I'm thinking. It was exciting to watch. It was exciting to watch. So when I talk about seeing things that I've never seen before, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. When I had graduated high school, so this would have been the summer of 2008, before I left for college, uh, Dad decided that we needed to go on a road trip. So we went on a baseball road trip. We went to, um, I guess, U.S. Cellular, which I don't even think that's the name of it anymore, where the White Sox play. Went to go see the Indians in uh, Cleveland. Went up to see the Tigers, then came back around and and went to Milwaukee. Um, We didn't end up making a stop at Wrigley, but in that trip, uh, I saw the rarest of all baseball feats, rarer than a triple play, uh, rarer than an unassisted triple play, the four consecutive homers, and I saw the only one that happened without the three or four hitters to be involved. And uh, Well, at least at the time. I think wow. it's hap- it might have happened since. The White Sox did it against, uh, I think it was the Royals. Then we went over to Cleveland, and that was the year Cliff Lee had uh, his Cy Young run. Um, yeah. And I think he struck out 15. Wow. Something like that. And the guy in front of us, who was an Indians fan, kept like badgering him from the fourth deck, which to me made no sense. <laughs> like that's a guy who's over consumed. He's not going to hear you, buddy. Then yeah. we went to Detroit uh, for a Tigers Orioles game that had a combined 48 runs. Yep. Wow. And uh, came back to Milwaukee and uh, watched CC because that was the year he got traded to the Brewers for that second half. That was the year they finally made the playoffs for the first time that in my lifetime. And I think he threw a two hit complete game shutout. So you, you think about some of those and those particular moments. um, I would absolutely agree. I have, uh, there has been almost no time I have left any type of live event early and definitely not a sporting event if I can help it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who the four players were for the White Sox. I know the first one. Canerico was, the, was one of them. Yep, Paul Canerico was betting fifth, and he hit the first. I'd have to look it uh, up. I, I cannot remember for the life of me. I want to say one of them was – Maybe, but again, it, it's baseman. so long ago because you're talking yeah. about the five, six, seven, eight for the White Sox in 2008. And that's so odd for that to happen, right? But but the, just those events you said right there, I love it because when are you going to see that kind of stuff? You know, absolutely. I happened to be at Mol- Miller Park watching a game, and uh, um, uh, why my Max Scherzer's on the mound. And he threw the ball, and um, he, it's like the seventh inning has a no-hitter going. And our uh, it was uh, 
Carlos Gomez, I think, was still with the team, and he had a swinging bunt that, that ended up being the only hit of the game. Then Scherzer goes on and no-hits the next game and then has a no-hitter going into the seventh inning of the third game. And uh, I'm look, thinking about this, and I'm like, he could have potentially beaten the Robin Roberts. or No, it wasn't Robin Roberts. Who was it that had back-to-back no-hitters? Played for the Reds in the 50s. And I'm like, wow. I, I mean, he just died like. Johnny Vandermeer. Yeah, Johnny Vandermeer. So... Well, are you two ready to grade this thing out? Sure. Let's do it. All right, legacy. Um, are you familiar enough with kind of the categories, Roger, in order to kind of – or if you have any questions, I guess just pop it up. Uh, I'll lead this one off and just kind of give a baseline. I had a 7.5. Uh, this is a movie that if you ask a lot of the baseball people, and particularly because baseball is not a youth uh, sport at the moment, uh, I think it's done a lot to kind of um, set in its ways, which I, I have a problem a lot with the baseball purists like both of you uh, as far as not progressing the game far enough, which is why I turn a lot more to basketball and football, just my personal preference. But this is the baseball purist movie. It always has been. And as much as Field of Dreams is often more – um, in the pop cultural icon that's more to the generalist. This is the one that if you ask any of the baseball players, if you um, talk to any of the announcers, writers, analysts, uh, Hall of Fame guys, etc., anybody that really loves the game, this is their movie. And from that alone, I think it's got to be up there. In addition, uh, this is on several different lists. I think it has had somewhat of a legacy. I will say that uh, it's not a movie as far as like sports movies that unless you're um, from the eighties is necessarily going to come up in most people's uh, first round of uh, what are the greatest movie or sports movies of all time. It's not going to be in the same um, sentence necessarily as Hoosiers for certain people or Caddyshack or Rocky or uh, um, oh, Raging Bull. But I think that with if you get the true movie fans and the true baseball fans, this is definitely going to come up. So I did have to grade it down just slightly for that, but I do think this has a rather good legacy as a baseball movie and a sports movie. I gave it a seven. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, what, the reason, uh, and, I, and, I, and I propped it up because it's, I, I think it's still referenced uh, there are a lot of a lot of great quotes. I mean, good gosh, we we've seen that tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, people do people will reference it. Um, you know, it, it's a good baseball movie. Uh, like you said, it's right in the middle there between uh, some of the other ones. Uh, I I think it's I think it's got decent legs. That's why I gave it a seven and probably not any higher. Again, it's one of my favorite movies, but uh, yeah, I I think seven is pretty fair. And Dad, what you have? I had a seven as well. So I, the one thing I thought of as I'm watching this is why I had not seen it before. Um, I mean, admittedly, this came out in 88, and, and, you know, basically the last half of the 80s I spent in a library. Um, 
So I, you know, my, my cultural knowledge um, was usually uh, revolving around the various types of beer that you drank after you finished at the library and the library. And uh, so I didn't get a whole lot of other, but I, I, you know, usually I picked up films and watched them later on. And this one, for some reason, I just never did. Now, the reason I, you know, the same time frame was Major League, which I think we'll be doing at some point here. You know, that one, they were advertising on the radio stations in Milwaukee while I was at, at in law school at Marquette asking for extras. And, uh, you know, I thought about going out there and being in the crowd so that I could, oh, I was in a movie. Um, and I didn't because, you know, I'm a nerd and, you know, you're, you know, I've, always used to figure out how much, you know, divide my tuition by the number of classes and how much each class was so that if I decided I wanted to skip, I just go, well, I just wasted $350. And you were really prescient that in 2020, several decades later, you would need to have a story of regret on a podcast. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, because um, heavens knows having stories that you can relate um, is one of the more important things in life as you get older. Especially for one of the great middle-aged movies. All right. So uh, that uh, averages out to a 7.17 for Legacy. Uh, Impact significance. I was not born yet. Um, I have it at best uh, some cursory accounts of the time. Dad was apparently in a library, so I'm going to rely a little bit on you, Roger. This might be a good one where you give us our your version of events within that like five-year time frame after this uh, movie came out. What do you think of the impact significance? I gave it an eight. I thought it was still there. Uh, you know, I'm. It's funny because I was in the last years of my undergrad <laughs> when you were in the library, uh, Dana. Um, yeah, I, I think it had some impact. I think we've talked about it from the standpoint that not only did the movie have it, but, you know, from an actor standpoint, right, it was it was a good Kevin Costner flick. Uh, and it would, you know, as you guys pointed out, he was in, in a lot of movies. Um, yeah, I, you know, for long term, I rated it lower. But uh, short term, based on the criteria, I, yeah, I, th- I thought it had some significance. Uh, that's why I gave it an eight. And eight might be being a little too gratuitous, but I'm going to stand firm in eight. Dad, what do you think? I had 7.5. Yeah. Okay. You want to explain? Well, I could. Um, it- Yes, it's a good film and such, but for whatever reason, I think part of why I never saw it, it was never one that it was like everybody said, oh, my God, you've got to see this film. And so to that extent, you know, people would talk about it as being a good film and that they enjoyed it and it was well done and on and on. But it wasn't one of those where people said, so I, I... I go with seven, you know, 7.5 is the minimum of people talking up a film over several years versus this is something you've got to go see. So I find this fascinating. This is now the second category in a row that I actually graded this higher than both of you. I had an (laughs) 8.5. So 
it promotes Ron Shelton, who goes on to do quite a few other things. In the moment, he gets nominated as a sports movie for Best Original Screenplay, which I think, given the Academy normally shuts out sports movies, normally shuts out um, comedies, and normally shuts out horror films, the fact that you had any impact on the award season at all uh, is significant by itself. And it cements Kevin Costner as a movie star leading man where he has this three-year run that is you know, the heart of his career. From that standpoint alone, I'll give it an 8.5. Well, thank you for doing that. So that rounds it out to an even eight. The math was really easy on that one for me. <laughs> uh, so, Dad, what did you have down for novelty? This one I really struggled with. I'm going to take it out of context of what I thought about because I mentioned the fact of ball four. So this was not revolutionary as far as I was concerned about telling the inside story of baseball, okay? And I thought about that because, but I mean, it was always done in print because I had grown up, I had read Ball Four. I had read The Bronx Zoo by Sparky Lyle. I had read all of these different inside accounts of what took place in the locker rooms, but it wasn't in a movie. So to that extent, I'm discounting the the inside writing or the inside book and giving the movie as being somewhat um, realistic because up until then baseball movies had been you know uh, you know the uh, Lou Gehrig story it had been the natural you know it was more <laughs> bigger than life and nobody was uh, was a uh, uh, a uh, hero with warts. And uh, so to that extent, I, I'm going to give it an, uh, an eight. Because if I divorce myself from that and just concentrate on it being a movie, it did go out there and do something very fundamental, which showed the humanity of the players. And so what was your score again? Eight. Eight. Okay. Roger, what did you have? I had a seven. Um, based on the criteria that you were listing there, I mean, it, it pushed a few boundaries. Um, it did create some new conversation. But, you know, when I think of it in the context of other movies that I've seen and other movies that I enjoy, yes, it's one of my favorites. Uh, but in this, in, in this context, um, uh, I, I think what it did for me, I, I said this at the beginning, I enjoyed the rawness of Costner's character, Crash, right? He's just out there and uh, kind of a take no prisoners mentality. You know, he's just somewhat, we think he's single dimension baseball. Um, but I loved the, the more I watched it, the more I thought about the, the, the deeper themes of, of teaching moments and what it meant to me. So, yeah, I mean, that to me, from a novelty standpoint, it wasn't earth shattering, Seven. I think it's no coincidence that almost all of our best sports movies, our most major or memorable sports movies, are all from a period of about 1976 through about 1995, roughly, give or take. There might be a few um, exceptions to that. I can't think of another baseball movie or a football movie necessarily or anything else that doesn't deal with a professional team. 
Um, ba- basketball Hoosiers deals with a high school team and Caddyshack, you know, is, you know, its own thing. But there is something to the premise of the lack of consequences that I already mentioned of a minor league baseball team, all of the antics, all of the stuff, because it's a harder life for minor league baseball players than you would ever think. You know, they're the, they describe it as the glitz and the glamour of uh, the show and the, the dream, but you're really living kind of a rugged life being a minor league baseball player. There's nothing else that's going to describe this. Number two, there are not a lot of movies that have this level of dialogue. Uh, I, I'm going to probably spend a lot of time comparing this. I, I can't think of a ton of lines from Field of Dreams that are particularly memorable or that have such great dialogue as this. So from that standpoint, I find it novel. I can't think of too many other sports movies, period, that have a lot of great dialogue unless it's a couple of one-liners here or there. Obviously, Caddyshack is a little bit different, but that that's catching four comedians all at the same time who are ad-libbing. That had nothing to do with the scripting. Uh, and finally, the other part of it is you compare it as far as written word to Major League. There is no line that's memorable out of Major League that doesn't come out of Bob Uecker's mouth. And if, from that standpoint alone, that, that means that it's a uh, novel because this is just so well scripted for everybody that's in it. So I gave it a seven and a half for that. And that's going to keep it at that seven and a half when we, we average it out. But I, I do think this is when you nitpick a sports movie by itself, a baseball movie by itself, a baseball movie with Kevin Costner is not novel, but you start really thinking about it a little bit, and there's enough to nitpick where you say, okay, yeah, in these ways, it's pretty novel. Well, you mentioned, you know, professional. I can name two non-professional sports movies, but they both involved a major conflict. Uh, One is We Are Marshall, where they're having to overcome the death of most of the team. And the other is, and I cannot remember the name of the film off the top of my head, but it's Josh Lucas, where he's the coach at Southwestern Texas. And that's just overcoming racism. It was um, uh, Texas Western. It's uh, uh, what's now Texas El Paso. And uh, I can't remember. It was a Disney movie, but um, that was a much different context. I'll give out another one. Technically, they were professional, but uh, it's a completely different movie, A League of Their Own. Um, yes. which I, I didn't think about, but that's another one that's like early 90s when you go that Tom Hanks run that's just legendary through the mid-90s. Oh, and that, of course, is the famous line, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a pretty easy one for best line. You know, um, I love what you pointed out as your second point, because I had this, why I gave it the the line I did, uh, Tom. It, it, it had great lines and classic lines. It had memorable, I love what you said, it had memorable dialogue. So, uh, classicness, this is probably our most difficult to describe category. I think this is one where basically has it aged well in two forms. Does it have anything that makes you cringe or that stands out to you as like, this wouldn't be acceptable if this movie came out today? As well as, okay, this was really ahead of its time. So from both standpoints, you're kind of on a a two-curve grading scale. And I think this movie could theoretically come out today in all but like two different forms. And the fact that it happened quite often 
is a little bit in context. I understand it because this is probably what our locker room was like up until maybe three or four years ago, max. Uh, but there's a lot of homophobia in this movie and a lot <laughs> of comments to that where like, you know, the, the line cocksucker comes up uh, in a fairly significant portion of this movie. Um, there's the whole thing with Nuke being afraid of being seen in the garter belt because, like, it, just because I'm wearing it, it, you're not gay. It, it feels good, does it? No, but that doesn't make me gay. Okay, in a 2020 movie, that's not going to be a scene or a line that's happening. And so it just pops up in some weird instances that it wouldn't anymore and it kind of took me a little bit out of the movie because i have that different mindset that we currently do so i gave it a six i I appreciate that where you're coming from uh tom thank you for that and it's interesting uh i the sensitivity that you have is something i'm typically i like to think that i'm i'm sensitive to uh and i and i respect where where you're coming from i gave it an eight um uh and and I'm not discounting your experience with it one iota. Uh, I, I, I totally see your point and why, why you were there. Um, for that standpoint, yeah, I, I would think a lot of things would have to be rewritten. Um, but I, I still think it, it holds up. Uh, that's why I'm high on it, and that's, uh, that's where I went with it. I said, I look at it today, yeah, I, you can tell you that uh, several of the themes apply today, uh, and the story applies. Eight. I I just, to be fair, we're doing so many of these movies and I have to grade or give so many little pieces. I don't grade it down to a six just because of the homophobia. I maybe grade it down from like a eight or a seven for that. But the first two points off of it is, is that I don't think this movie was necessarily ahead of its time. I just think it's aged well because there's really nothing in here that um, ages poorly. I think this movie could come out as long as there's baseball and there's minor league baseball, you could probably put this on again in 10 years and remake this movie and it'll be just fine. And you just rewrite those certain sections and it's probably classically an eight, but it's just one of those, one of those two things. When we get to the point of uh, having, you know, 300, 400 episodes of these movies, because we have a huge master list of ones to pick from and that you've got to like really separate these out by small points. That's where I'm starting to think into the larger picture of it. But uh, all right. So we got a six and we got an eight. What did you have down dad? I had seven. (laughs) Well, you're going to make the math really easy on me tonight. Yeah, I know. Um, You know, and I understand your point, but having gone through and lived that whole period and saw the transformation I mean, I've been, during the whole uh, pandemic and the stay at home, I've tried to resurrect shows that I used to enjoy that are on Netflix that um, I either didn't, haven't seen in years or never got all the episodes. So I've been, I've finished Cheers. Now I've been working through them in the last season of the 11 Frasier and the number of homophobic jokes that are being made in that show in 2003, when two of the primary characters on the show in real life are gay, was amazing to me. I'm going, and they were okay with this? To be fair, again, 
I, I know that, and I uh, quantified this a little bit by saying, this is probably the same language and dialogue that was legitimately going on in locker rooms until about three, four years ago, where you actually had people coming out and saying they were gay in a locker room. And they started being a little bit more sensitive because the country is very new to being accepting of this. I mean, this is a conversation that was very different 10 years ago, eight right. years ago. Right. So it's not like I don't understand in context that it's there. It's just that it really took me out of the movie because it, it wouldn't be something that would fit in a normal thing. But right. it's not like if this movie had been made in 2010 and it was making this stuff, that would be much more glaring for me than 1988 where the country was in a much different place in the Reagan and Bush era or first Bush era. And so I can give it a little bit more, but I, again, it's, it's degrees of separation to a certain extent. So if you haven't been, been following at home, I'll just recap the categories we have so far. Legacy 7.1784 impact significance, 7.5 for novelty and 7 for classicness after we did all the averages. Roger, I think I cut you off there for a second. No, I, I just wanted to add what, to where, what you guys were saying. I, I think the conversation has changed significantly uh, since this movie was made. Uh, and, and it continues to change. We're having conversations now we weren't having a year ago. Uh, and, and that's a good thing. And so looking at a movie in a, con in a context doesn't excuse necessarily what was done. Uh, it, like you said, you were pointing out, you, you put the movie in a context and, and, and you get a flavor for what uh, was happening in the, in the country, in the world at the time. And uh, totally, totally uh, get where you're going with it. I, I appreciate the dialogue here. The one thing I'll say, and was that part of my grade, that maybe I graded out a little bit too low, although I'll, I'm comfortable with a seven where it's sitting at from the average. So we'll just, we'll stick with that. But I did mention the line. And so it, it's kind of a, uh, mark on myself or I'm calling myself out a little bit that I didn't add that there is one particular instance where it was a bit ahead of its time. And it's going back to one of my line nominees of uh, you didn't get lured in. You are responsible for your own actions and it's taking some level of culpability on um, women being somewhat promiscuous. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's setting up the strength of that. Oh. Uh, that is, a part of this and really giving that um, agency to Annie's character later on, because like they don't, and, and I use this term um, very purposefully, they don't slut shame either Millie or Annie really in this film. They do end up setting up Millie with uh, Jimmy at the end where it's kind of like the opposites meet and kind of figure it out. And they, they do mention that, um, well, how long were you together before you proposed five hours? But and that that's somewhat of a throwaway. But ultimately, there is a strength that's given to these particular women that was a little bit ahead of its time and gave them their own, again, agency to move forward in this story. So if if anything that I missed, it, it's not adding that, especially since I had pointed that out earlier in the episode. So finally, rewatchability. This is by far the most subjective, subjective characterization. I let you all go. Roger, this is your favorite, the one you picked. How rewatchable is this? I don't normally do this. I gave it a 10, guys, because it's one of my favorites. I'll get, I'll, I, I could go 9-5, you know, if we don't go. No, if go we, with it, your 10. I, I really do. Uh, I I could watch this one again and again. There are very few movies that I rewatch. Um 
I love this one uh, I, I, because it's a, it's a favorite. I'm going to go 10. And we love the enthusiasm. That's why we always ask everybody for their favorite <laughs> film to discuss. That's, that's why we want this on because the conversation yep. is just that much um, better. Dad, what do you think? Well, I had been waffling back and forth and I'm going to give it an 8.5. This is, and I go above the eight mark when it's a film that if I'm scanning through the channels and it's nine o'clock, nine thirty at night, and I'm not quite ready to go to bed and I just want to watch something that kind of lightens my mood or my mind for a half hour before that, I'll stop and watch this. Otherwise this is a film that I would watch almost every year. And it's very rare that there is a film that I would like to watch every year. So I went beyond the normal eight for, you know, the year and went to the, you know, that's my rubric of uh, grading. So, by the way, we forgot to mention that we've named the rubric. Oh, yes. Good old Stanley rubric. You guys are hilarious. <laughs> that, that's funny. He came up with that last week, and it's on the back episode or part of the episode. I don't know how many people listened to it that long, but we basically are going to now keep that as a trope where we watch every guest groan at that being the case. That's that's uh, com that's comedy right there. It's almost right. like you it's almost like you did it like clockwork. Uh, oh, come on, that's a oh, groan. Yeah, ah, there we go. Yeah, Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, we, we got to give you credit for that one. Thanks, right, guys. Right. Big groan. I, I, I bow in the presence. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll just right. keep my eyes wide shut. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's been a great going on this odyssey with you. Oh, you just stole the one I had. Oh, I'm sorry. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go full metal jacket on you. There we go. Anyway, And we're back. All right. So <laughs> do not take this as a personal affront. I am going to be drastically different from the two of you. Uh, so rewatchability has taken on a completely different thing for me as we've gone along because this is the most subjective. And I have a very difficult grading scale when it comes to this by intention to try and really work this in um, for my matter of rewatchability. Dana has often described this as being his um, mac and cheese category. 10 for him is going to be the movie you go to when you really just want to veg out and just watch something that you put on your uh, sweatpants and kind of snuggle up and do nothing else and rewatch this movie on a loop. So with that being the standard, I find it very difficult. So when a movie like this is there, there's nothing wrong with this movie. I enjoyed this movie. It was fine, but it's middle of the road for me. So if I'm talking middle of the road, that means it's a five. And then I'm going to do something extra to add on this because that's not the final grade I gave it. I already mentioned this in the podcast, but this is really a good first hour movie. I can give or take significant portions of the second hour of this movie. Like, the whole relationship thing and their whole, like, we haven't discussed it a lot, but that whole weird sex scene and then the eating the Wheaties, then he takes her on the table. 
you could completely cut that out and the movie's fine. Oh, it is it it's okay. so unnecessary to the rest yeah. of the movie and there are so bi- so no, many big bad. stretches where this I... drags for me in the second hour. So I went with a 4.5. Oh, 4.5? All right. 4.5. I, I, I respect your 4.5, but I got to tell you, man, I, I I don't know. Maybe, Dana, you, you, you're you feeling the same way here. I I think the scene belongs. I mean, it, it, it it's there. It, you know, it, it, it shows the two of them vulnerable, raw people. Whatever. I mean, there's a lot. I think it fits. I've seen so many good sex scenes that add to a movie, but they're usually short or something else. This one became elongated, uh, over the top, and just and one of these is going to come up as a point in my remaining questions. But there, there's just a, uh, a certain part of even that that really took me out of the movie. Okay. Now I will say that this average is down with your ten because of the, that to seven point six seven. So you know you could take that for whatever it's worth. But Dad, before uh, we move on to audience score, what do you have to add? I just was going to say, the reason you're discounting the whole love relationship situation in the back half of the movie... Say it's because I'm single. ...is because you're single. Because I'll tell you, when you've okay. been in that situation... I mean, I can share stories, but she is your mother. And you just... there's I, I mean, I can see that. I can remember... Not quite those scenes, but there are other scenes that are just, you know, when you're first starting into an intense relationship that are just like that. They're special memories. And that's what it was really tugging at, was to show you the level of intimacy. Yep. I'm I'm just going to say ditto. Not to the part about your mother. But uh, <laughs> but but to the but but to your point of intimacy and the intensity of uh, uh, first experience, just the intensity of the of getting together. Yeah, that that was all there. I thought it. I thought it belonged. There it's like you're, is, you're building up to it. There are so many mainstream rom coms that I'm a rom com guy that works so much better than this. I. I I just didn't care about their particular relationship at the end of the movie. Like, you know they're going to get together, but it, it, it takes on almost no meaning for me by the time that they get to that point. And so that's why it just never worked for me. I have seen very few rom-coms which really actually show that the people involved ultimately care for each other beyond a superficial level. Yeah. And you haven't watched enough good ones. I think apparently I haven't. No, I think late. You know, I can tell you comparatively. Um, I, I understand where you're coming from, uh, Thomas. I do comparatively. I think there, it, 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 in the thirty plus years since you know this has been made, I could probably name ten better love scenes and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think within the, the the within the confines of the film, uh, that's why I, I, I think it works. Uh, but yeah, I think there are much better uh, stagings. Uh, writing, uh, scene angles, all that kind of stuff in terms of, you know, love scenes. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at it from the context of does it work in this movie? And I like what it did. So, I, and I respect, I, respect your, I respect your opinion, bud. Not to take us in a completely different path for another movie we haven't covered yet again, but give me Lacey Underall all day compared to this. Oh. 
<sighs> okay. All right. Anyway, uh, that uh, so the audience score on this one was an eighty-two. The critic score is a ninety-seven, which is kind of a weird separation. And I'm I'm a little bit surprised that it's only an eighty-two, even though like there are certain things I nitpicked. I thought with how much that I've heard about this film, particularly of sports fans, that it would have been a little bit higher. But um, so in recap, we had a 7.17, 8, 7.5, 7, 7.67, 7. and an 8.2 for a total score of 45.54. Uh, that places it squarely between um, Roman Holiday and Slumdog Millionaire on our list. Hmm. All right, then. Which is an interesting place. I, I there have yeah. definitely been some surprises, and there are some movies that are uh, below that. I would have not guessed when we started this thing, but definitely I can I can see where it fits in a different context. I think this is going to be a very different list by the time we're done with it. And I've maintained that the biggest part about this show that's going to be the most important when we're done is the list. I like what you're doing with it. So, uh, final thoughts, remaining questions. Uh, who wants to take their remaining question first? I had one. Uh, I think one of the obvious ones would be, you know, do they stay together? At least it was obvious to me. I think they do. Uh, I think raw passion gives way to meaningful, uh, meaningful relationship between the two. Uh, I think they're good for each other and they know it. I think they stick it out for the long haul. So, the do they stay together? That was a one for me. I'm a hopeless romantic. I think they do. So the the talk about the sequel, and I know this is one of your other kind of remaining questions, but uh, Ron Shelton specifically mentions that he could never figure out exactly the character trajectory after this. If Costner takes on the manager's job, which he basically insinuated would be the exact case, um, does she travel with him? If not, then is it become a long-distance relationship, and thus this is a completely different thing? And how do you possibly write in Nuke um, into a sequel where he's not part of it? I don't think it's possible because they're in a completely different setting unless you make it like Godfather 2 where it's two completely different stories that are at the same time, which to me doesn't work either. So it's, it's one of those where uh, he said it would be interesting if they ever revisited it now that you know, Costner's in his late 60s. And um, I can't remember how old Sarandon is, but I mean, 73. Not... I looked okay. it up. So this is, uh, but, you know, if, if you went into that direction where maybe he worked himself up to a, a front office guy or did something else, you no. maybe could make something out of it. But I, I don't think it carries the same weight. Ultimately, if you can't find a good way to, or a reason to tell more of the story, just leave it as is, and it's probably better. I, I can come up with an idea for an arc off the top of my head, which is Costner and, uh, or moves up. He and Sarandon end up apart. Um, the climactic scene is the World Series. Um, Nuke is the pitching coach for the opposing team. And it's a battle of wills, you know, with Sarandon ultimately sitting there watching the game and the end being that they, that Costner wins and he announces retirement and he and Sarandon 
resurrect the relationship that fell apart due to his need to focus on managing. Wow. I buy that, but let me throw out this alternate one. They're separated. He's a big league manager, but the new prospect that's coming through is their son who hates Crash because of the separation and has a bitterness toward him. And mm-hmm. so he's the pitcher that Nuke is now giving all of the lessons Crash once gave him, and ultimately he learns to appreciate his dad through that. That's great, too. Wow. Uh, I didn't get anywhere near as creative. Uh, I'm just going to say I didn't finish my homework. Holy crap. Uh, you guys are great. I'd watch either of those. Uh, I only wanted to know, I guess, I just wondered if he went on to coach uh, baseball and where he went. I saw him get into the majors, yeah. I didn't take any of the story arcs there, but you guys are great. I'm, I'm going to do that with some of the other movies I've seen. I, I love both of uh, the, the launching points you guys went on. Uh, that would be a good uh, spinoff podcast at some point. Um, rewrite the movie yeah. or uh, write the sequel. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'm going to agree with you on one thing. Uh, defi- uh, well, I, I love your, your both your stories. And I'm going to agree with you on this one point too, Tom, that uh, I like that they stopped. I like that they didn't resurrect it. I think it would ruin and cheapen it for me. I just like where they left it. Uh, I think this is one of those that I'm glad they didn't do a sequel. You mean you didn't like Caddyshack 2 or Major League 2? I don't think I saw Caddyshack 2. Uh, and, I unfortunately uh, did. Yeah, I don't think I saw that one. If I did, I, I put it out of my memory. Uh, you know, And Major League 2 didn't do it nearly as much as the original for me. Jackie Mason and Diane Carroll. Yeah? Yeah. Let's strip out <sighs> of the movie exactly everything that worked about it in the first one and hope people like it. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's incredible. Guys, this has been really fun. Uh, I've had a ball talking about one of my favorites, and I'm glad you guys gave it, geez, this much time. Uh, it means the world to me to be able to have this kind of dialogue about movies in general. And I've learned a few things, uh, definitely. Uh, definitely a little more about the two of you, and I've definitely learned more uh, you've added to my movie watching skills, seeing things in them. Definitely, Dana, that I hadn't. Uh, same with you, Tom. Uh, I really appreciate this. I want to thank you both uh, for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Roger. Yeah, thanks, Roger. I mean, uh, this was enjoyable. I mean, Tom and I are just two putzes who, you know, have spent our lives watching movies. I started watching movies as a small child with my dad, who was a huge movie buff. I'm named after the movie actor Dana Andrews. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, I had a brother who died at birth who was named Kirk. And my sister's name is Lana. Yeah, your family. Oh, my goodness, buddy. Thank you for sharing that. Your family, yeah, they (laughs) love movies. I hear you. Yeah. So, but yes, and and, Tom and I have been kicking around one of our our, uh, potential side podcasts, which is, uh, naming the great character actors of all time. Oh boy, that'd be a fun one. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with character actors, but uh, that's one of those when they're pointed out, you really appreciate their performances. I, I think you would be, depending on what our definition of a character actor is. But I think that's one we're gonna like save for uh, uh, special parts of the the podcast. But uh, this is probably I have a couple of other remaining questions. Um, if you're curious 
Um, I'll throw them up on the uh, on the blog. Um, as always, uh, there's a special page on my uh, particular blog that's always in the show notes, as well as a link to the full list uh, that we have up on the website, all 35 uh, movies up to this point. And that'll continue going as we add new uh, particular shows. But um, we've been going uh, roughly about two and a half hours. So uh, <laughs> I think at, at a certain point, uh, we need to uh, kind of uh, cut this a, a little bit down and uh, uh, give people um, something to move on to. I, I don't know how much they're going to want to spend too much more time with the three of us. But uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. Roger, where can people find you to uh, see more about your work or um, just uh, if they enjoyed uh, your musings, uh, at least uh, be able to converse with you further? Yeah, uh, you can find me at uh, www.rogerwalkoff.com. That's R-O-G-E-R-W-O-L-K-O-F-F.com. And thanks for being on. Um, hopefully we can do this again at a different time. I know you had a couple other ones that you uh, wanted to potentially do or uh, revisit. Um, one of them is a particular interesting one for me, which we haven't gotten into yet, but it's the realm of animation. I won't mention what the movie is, but um, that's going to be uh, an exciting part as we kind of expand the show for uh, season two, potentially. So I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, um, we'll be back with a different guest. Uh, I have not um, figured out which one. We have uh, about three or four really good ones um, chomping at the bit to try and get on the show, um, which we appreciate. If uh, you'd like to um, email the show or get in contact with us, that is the um, greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. Um The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our uh, technical advisor and distributor is Anchor FM. Thanks, and have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you next week.